On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, the papers. Be prepared for lots of crinkling pages, which my producer always tells me we want to hear crinkling pages. So what have we got here? Business Post first up. We've got Intel workers to be told of potential job cuts in weeks. Government tells IDA to monitor potential job losses at the leak slip plant. So not good news there on the way, potentially. Uh, Leo Varadkar is quoted up on the right-hand side of the page there. PRSI will need to rise to keep state pension at 66. So he's sort of itemising the cost of that. I'm not avoiding discussing anything with anyone, says Mary Lou MacDonald. That's on page three of the Business Post. And probably the most interesting one is at the bottom of page one, which I suppose it should never be, but it is interesting. A state moves towards ban on using Huawei in critical infrastructure. A strong story by Charlie Taylor. He says the government is moving toward a ban on telecoms companies in Ireland using Huawei equipment in their critical infrastructure networks over national security fears so we'll have a little bit of a closer peer at that one shortly. Sunday Times have Hutch Gang on the brink after Informer jailed ex-guard that provided security for crime syndicate. Intriguing. Nightclub drug test to tackle soaring abuse rates is on the right hand side and there is a picture there of Savita 10 years on the march goes on Laura Fitzgerald of the feminist group Rosa going through Dublin uh, at a march to do with Savita Palavanaver who died of sepsis of course in the tragic circumstances 10 years ago and the whole abortion area is still very much a live political issue a decade on and finally the Sunday Independent we have O'Brien U-turn over sack civil servant remark Taoiseach says Sinn Féin TD's comment was disruptive risky and shifty which is not a word you see too often uh, in political rows. And there's a picture of John Delaney over on the right-hand side. Um, he'll face a big legal bill they're suggesting there over emails. And there is also the Mail on Sunday, which has an unnamed politician in a, a very serious story, but it is unnamed to do with grooming um, underage victims so we probably can't say a whole lot about that because we don't have a name or the political party but my next two guests may have something to say on that and the others and those guests are Breed O'Brien who is the director of Unique Media one of Dublin's and Ireland's leading communications and PR agencies and a former journalist Breed is with us in studio and we also have Jared Howland who is a public affairs consultant political commentator and former government advisor of long experience of managing and advising various public representatives. Breda Brown and Jared Allen are both here. Right folks, very welcome along. We have a fair bit to get through. A lot of it's very party political, Breda. Um, but let's start with the, the kind of the big story of the three is certainly the size of the headline would say it's the big one. It says Ono Brin in kind of a difficult situation for him. He's criticised a leading civil servant. He's sort of resiled a little bit from that, but it's not fully kind of cleaned up, I would say. No, it's a huge splash on the front page of the Sunday Indo from Jodie Corcoran. And this is where I suppose all politicians going forward and particularly Sinn Féin need to be very careful about what they're saying in the public domain because it could end up as a splash on the front page of the paper. So this Emmet actually dates back to last month. Apparently there was a discussion on housing at a music festival in Roscommon. God, we're all very cool and hipster these days we're talking about. (laughs) Everything um, starts in Roscommon and ends there. (laughs) In Roscommon but it's only come to light now and apparently um, at the time uh, Owner Bryn basically said that there is a particular civil servant who should should be sacked. He's the chief economist 
in the Department of Finance and his name is John McCarthy and he said that essentially he just didn't understand um, housing policy, he shouldn't be involved in housing policy and he should be sacked. So this has come to, to light over the past couple of days and Owen O'Brien, uh, when pushed on it in the last day or two, has essentially done a U-turn and said, OK, he shouldn't be sacked. However, he shouldn't be working in the area of housing policy. So again, I think it'll be an interesting one to, to watch over, over the next while. But uh, what I'm sort of thinking here is, you know, some people sort of said, look, it was just an off the cuff, cuff remark that was made in a tent in Roscommon. My view is, if you're saying anything in public, assume it's going to end up in the media or end up somewhere, especially in a day and age where everything is recorded. So I thought it seemed a little bit naive on, on Owner Bryn's part. Now, Jared, uh, I think we'll probably all be agreed and a lot of listeners will be that he shouldn't have said what he said about sacking the civil servant. I mean, that's a dangerous uh, turn of events. Is he on slightly better ground when he says, well, we shouldn't accept his advice? Or is that also problematic from your point of view? No, that's not problematic. Uh, I suppose the chief economist, the Department of Finance, is a bit like the chief priest. Uh, he is not there to comfort uh, the politician or, or, or the minister. He or she is there to give their frank intellectual synthesis of a given view uh, and I've seen John McCarthy Chief Economist in action at a number of Oireachtas committees. He seems very assured of his own position um, and um, I think in general it's good to have people like that around the system. That being said, is a minister, a government under any obligation to take any advice from any civil servant? The answer is frankly no. They're not. They're perfectly entitled, absolutely entitled uh, to, to this to this to disregard it. Um, the the issue I think for Sinn Fein and for a hitherto very assured performance over years by Owner Bryn is this was a political mistake, uh, and that's a very serious matter. In, in that it wasn't just that he misspoke, in that it chimed with something people rightly or wrongly suspect. Sinn Féin of, which is that they are less than fulsome in their adherence to authority outside the internal authority of their own organisation. Well, uh, yeah, and I'm also surprised that, you know, we're constantly told that they run a very on-message communications operation, mm. that there's great message discipline, you know, they're almost uh, militaristic in terms of the messaging of it. Um, this is, as you say, it's it's sloppy stuff, whatever else you think about it. Mm. Like, let's leave the kind of morality of it and how the civil service works. Are, are you surprised that he hasn't sort of just killed it off completely in, in his fresher statement? I mean, this now sounds like it'll rumble on. Yeah, and the idea that uh, somebody who's the chief economist shouldn't be allowed to work in a, in a, in a certain area or their view should be automatically disregarded. I mean, the reality is that a lot of these big spending commitments in government and Sinn Féin, the government are always trying to say that Sinn Féin is an outlier in terms of spending commitments, but as the government spends more and more, Sinn Féin is less and less of an outlier. Uh, what is entirely absent, apart from John, people like John McCarthy, Chief Economist, and myself, uh, and a few others, is, is the... Uh, articulation of a view uh, that spending on moored to a reliable, sustainable tax base is now out of kilter in this economy. That it is posing increasingly a real danger. And I think that was part of what he, McCarthy, was saying in terms of the demand for extra uh, spending on housing. First of all, you need a, a system that can absorb the spending without being inflationary. And that means the brickies, uh, the chippies, the building companies and, and all the apparatus and capacity to do that. And then you have to look at the displacement of, the, of those resources vis-a-vis -vis yeah, other areas. crowding out other parts of the economy. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And I don't think that's very thought through uh, by any of the parties in or out of government. And I see them very much along a continuum of increasing economic disorder and profligacy. 
Well, what I find interesting, Brida, is, is obviously you've seen in Britain where the head of the Treasury was sacked just before the Liz mm. Truss. And it was On literally... day one. Yeah, it was mm. pretty soon before the the, the cami quasi budget we had over there. So in a strange way in Britain and Ireland, civil servants are in right now. They're, they're actually, you know, they're seen as being important. There are a constraint on the politicians and it, can you afford things? Can you fund certain things? So it seems a strange intervention. I know it was a month ago in Roscommon, so maybe that's one of the reasons. But there's not much appetite around in financial markets or in government for kind of doing down senior civil servants. They are actually the guys you need at the moment, seems to be the wisdom. And remember, in Northern Ireland at the moment, the senior civil servants are actually running the whole administration up there because everything has fallen apart. So they absolutely have a, have a role to play, as we know. And interestingly, uh, the Fine Gael TD, Alan Farrell, is quoted as well in the Sunday Independent saying Sinn Féin's threat to sack senior civil servants who don't comply with the party's thinking was another worrying attempt to silence critics and suppress public debate. Um, again, which is interesting. And that's where a lot of people would be would be feeling about this today. But just to go back to what Jerry was saying in terms of, of a, a political mistake. Um, it, it, as he said, O'Brien has come back and said it was an awful off the cuff and he sort of didn't mean to say it mm. but he should have been thinking further ahead and and not have said it in the first place and certainly as we said in, in, in the political domain and going back to exactly what I said at the very start we are coming into a scenario now where going to, we're going to be you know in interesting political territory with the switching around of the Taoiseach and the Taunish and gearing towards the next general election essentially and potentially 2024 certainly in 2025 um, so they need to get their message back on track if, if they want to uh, do as well in the polls as they think they Yeah can I nudge you on to a story related to that then on page three of the business post so this whole thing about the media and Sinn Féin is going to be I personally think going to be a big thematic piece of Irish politics Mm -hmm. in the next few years the two sides uh, bumping up against each other Uh, I don't know how you know it's always uh, I think it's more than just the normal tension you get between the politicians and the media I think this is of a different nature on page three of the business post it's also on the front page is I'm not avoiding discussing anything with anyone so during the week a number of our political correspondents across all the different media outlets have said they're not getting the same amount of access to Sinn Féin as they once would have done. I have no idea. I'm not involved in that part of uh, journalism or the media. But And then they're saying about the writs that have been issued to Orty and, and other places over the years. So is this relationship between the media and Sinn Féin, I mean, what, what's your assessment of the, the health or otherwise of that at the moment? Well, generally, when a politician is not coming out to talk, there's usually a reason for it. So it just depends on, on what that reason is. Um, and the piece in the Business Post today by Daniel Murray sort of outlines a number of reasons, the main one being um, she's trying to avoid dealing with the press after the publication of, of Shane Ross's biography, unauthorised biography about her, and she doesn't want to answer questions around that. Um, and they list then a number of, of events that have happened recently where she wasn't around, she wasn't available. Apparently, she was sick at one point um, and she hasn't been present at Sinn Féin organised interview opportunities either. The only time she has been out recently was in relation to to talking about Northern Ireland. So, yeah, it does make you wonder. You sort of go, why aren't they? Why isn't she out there a little bit more? What's going on in the background? You would also wonder, would she not have been better off maybe coming out and and dealing with all the issues in the book first and getting them out of the way as opposed Uh, uh, to letting this drag on similar to what's going on with Owen And if you were advising Sinn Féin, wouldn't you say you're riding high in the polls, you're at a very high level sport, you can only go down. So why would you be doing additional interviews, additional opportunity? Just well, do now, the Jerry's basic. the former government advisor. So we leave Is that, that what you him. would say, Jerry? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this about the, the fourth estate. They're notoriously insensitive to the feelings of others and correspondingly notorious precious about their own standing and feelings. So I think all this should be taken with several grains of salt on both sides. Um, has Sinn Féin pulled up the drawbridge a little? 
uh, and is our, the media, particularly those who circulate in Leinster House, uh, you know, overdoing this a little as well? I'd say the truth. Well, process. there's two of them in it is, what, is where you're... You know, I, I can hat. remember being in a studio in, in, the, in this station and uh, I think it was Enda Kenny in the context of the 2016 election point blank refused not to give a certain well-known person an interview. Never happened. This was some sort of awful disgrace on his part to the public democracy. That's all nonsense. Uh, he was perfectly entitled to make his choices about who he spoke to and when. Uh, nobody is under any obligation to speak to any journalist ever, to do any interview ever, to appear in any station ever, to do anything. They're not whatever. under an obligation, but is that a healthy thing? Sometimes, yes. But what about Sometimes, the optics, though? The optics. Well, well, but the, hold on a second, Brida. The optics in the media, as written in the Sunday newspapers today, is poor. Seldom, if ever, does, does that translate into a jot of interest or concern among the wider public. Sometimes there are exceptions. It's not always so, but there is a heightened sense of feeling about this in the media that seldom translates as fully and sometimes not at all to the general public. But, but 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 to put the other side, the journalistic side would be there are interviews being done. For example, the Sinn Féin leader was on Good Morning Britain, for mm. example. So there are been interviews being done, mm-hmm. just not with them. And why is that choice being and made? And not around the Shane Ross book. Well, I, can, that... I think we can all understand that well, piece. But, but, yeah. but, but Mary Lou MacDonald is not under an obligation to help Shane Ross sell his book. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. But there are questions that have come up potentially as a result of what's in the book that the media maybe potentially at this point and want she, answers yeah, to and, on and the I'm basis very that curious, she could be yeah, the next show. And I'm curious about those questions myself. Um, and like she has to make a decision which she's entitled to is to speak to this uh, with a view to putting it to bed or not to deign to speak to it at all. And that's a judgment she has to make and she take the consequence of that judgment over time. Well, let's let's talk polls related to that because they may be driving some of the coverage and some of the decisions around who we talk to and don't talk to and when we don't talk. And later on, I'll be talking to Ivana Bacic, um, Labour, Labour leader. And I mean, I don't think, well, obviously, I don't want to pre end the interview, but at 4%, it, it doesn't look good for the party. And I say that in the sense that it's just moribund. They've been at 3 or 4% for quite a few years. Uh, and in fairness to her, she's only been in six months, so we'll have to see what she has to say. But generally, a little bit of good news it, it seems to be the conventional wisdom for the governing parties. They're not up hugely, but they're, they've sort of bottomed out, certainly on the Fine Gael side. Um, um, can you synthesise, Gerard, the various different things going on here? I know there's different parties. I can, I can, I can and certainly synthesise the Fine Gael position. Uh, they are now back thereabouts after their budget bump up to their second worst general election result ever, which they got on election day of the 8th of February 2020. That's and their synthesis of their position. They're back to their second mm. worst result mm. ever. Um, and that is based on um, the better of the two polling results, by the way, which is the Irish Times, which has them at 22, and the Sunday Business Post, which has them at 20.9, and they got 21 on election day. Well, the budget seems to have been the, the crucial factor in putting a bottom underneath some of those figures, Jared. I mean, when you give a lot of money to a lot of people, generally you're going to see some payoff, aren't you? Well, it was interesting. And again, the Irish Times poll during the week as well had the coalition as the most popular choice as well after after the next election, you know. And I think possibly down to two factors, Emmett. One, we are now seeing the budget bounce. So people were getting those double payments, um, social welfare payments and other payments this week. So they're seeing that coming in. Now, it's been eroded 
quite astronomically by cost of living, but that is helping. Also watching the UK, though, over the past couple of weeks and seeing the absolute chaos that was going on over there probably demonstrated that we do have a level of stability here at the moment, um, which I think, you know, maybe that's what the electorate are looking at and going, OK, we're not, this crowd aren't as bad as we potentially thought that they were. So there are two reasons why, may, why maybe the, the coalition side of things are, are, are holding up holding up quite well, which... You know, again, we're we're moving towards, as we said earlier on, that um, switch around date between the Taoiseach and the Taunish in in December. And then after that, we're going to get into a a focused on the next election period. So they will want to try and and hold their own. Um, And I think there is strong allegiances, I suppose, and an alliance between the three coalition parties at the moment. Once we get to ne- early next year, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out because I think once Micheál Martin moves from the role of Taoiseach back to Taunister, we're going to end up with some internal upheaval there in terms of his role. So I think next year we'll have a, have a lot to say, you know. Yeah, and also polls, OK, you get those mad, crazy oscillations, those big swings, dramatic, but mm. most of the time, as Jared will know, it's just slight dips and, and you know always, they're, they're pretty static yes and always in the margin of error mm. so we're talking about nothing actually one or two <laughs> excuse <percent>. me <laughs> Jared uh, Hamlin leave this studio like, and don't ever ask this man back what, here what, again what, please what, what matters is the trend and the trend for Sinn Féin is, is very solidly mm. in, in, the, in the mid to high 30s for a very long time and that 35% in the business post today or in the Irish Times during the week is like 13 points ahead mm. of the 22% uh, um, um, it's uh, sorry, twelve percent ahead of the twenty-four percent it got in the uh, in the in the general election. Now, what is in the game for Fianna Fáil and, and Fine Gael, and, and perhaps to a lesser extent for the Greens, is that Sinn Féin, if Sinn Féin are pushed back a little, that they still have a substantial lead, that they hold most of their gains, but they don't hold them all. That could be sufficient to put a coalition of all others back in the game. Yeah, and, and, and another political... It's, it's tight enough under certain yeah, circumstances. Yeah, I mean, a, a political scientist I know told me, he said, Emmett, you guys have got it all wrong. He said, every single percentage point matters in a four or five seat mm. constituency. Mm. So when you see these little movements that to the wider public mm. might mean a whole lot, he said to the political workers, they're huge. They could mm. swing for the difference in someone getting just one seat or mm. two seats. So... They do matter. It's just, it's it's kind of like watching a stream. It's quite hard to see what the long-term direction of it so is. So does this go back to what we were talking about earlier on with Mary Lou MacDonald and, and sort of being more choosy in terms of interviews that they'll do because they know they have to try and keep it nice and steady as we approach the next general election and for nothing negative to happen or the party not to implode or yeah. anything along those and, and lines. And the, the bigger issue about Sinn Féin is not whether Mary Lou is doing interviews. She's very competent at the mm. old interview business in my experience uh, and a handful of senior spokespeople she has around her including Owen O'Brien mm. who, who are generally very good but there's a vast swathe of backbenchers in Sinn Féin who were uh, surprised to be elected and uh, would not be nearly as competent as their superiors mm. and if Median Heron uh, you, you know, if it went out and about into those backwoods, <laughs> that's a great seek, phrase. <laughs> seeking those backbenchers, mm. it could get a lot of very, uh, you know, pungent, that's the pungent phrases. What you're talking about is the every party has an awkward squad, right? People who are kept in the closet a little I, bit. I out think of Sinn Fein uh, have a lot of inexperienced backbenchers who, uh, you know, if they were sat down and talked through a few issues, could readily now, Gerald, I, I give a few headlines. I've got a few texts coming in, and I don't. Don't like to put those to uh, our paper reviews because that's not why you're ostensibly here. But just to, to see what oh, you think please. of this, yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing bad. It's, <laughs> Don't a, it's, it's pure <laughs> philosophy here. Okay, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been in power for a century. 
well, they haven't been, but 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 okay, intermittently. So yeah, mm. it is natural that the civil servant is packed with individuals who believe in the policies of these parties. If we are to complete the revolution at the next election and fully implement those policies, it will not simply be enough for Sinn Fein to take control of the doll, which is uh, maybe not the, my best phrase. We must reform the civil service. Also, the civil service must serve the people, not the other way around. Now, first of all, none of this is a comment on John McCarthy himself. Just to make mm. that quite clear. Um, but what what this man is saying is is he's essentially suggested the civil service by osmosis are reflecting the policies of the consensus of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. A, is that your experience? And, and B, is it a lot more complex? They've got their own agenda, civil service, their bureaucracy have their own things they want to do. So there's never been a government since 1922 that doesn't, hasn't had Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, albeit with their earlier Pregenitors, uh, so Come they have Gale, been common yeah. uh, So they have been in power forever in terms of the history of the state. In relation to the c- civil service, I can assure your caller of this: civil servants have never died in the ditch for any politician or political party ever. They have, with a statesmanlike capacity, moved quickly to get out of the line of fire when any government was facing it. They're very good at moving on. And in fact, my sense is the civil service have moved on to an extent. They are preparing, not for the certainty of Sinn Féin in government, but for a distinct possibility of Sinn Féin in government. And Sinn Féin is being socialised around town, uh, but in the biggest companies, in the most influential accounting houses and law firms, uh, that socialisation is ongoing at a fairly busy mm-hmm. rate. And uh, it's like that great poem of Yeats and the fingers in the greasy till. Irish revolutions tend to be very conservative and uh, the business interests of the day tend to move smartly with the new regime. Well, mm-hmm. And that is what's happening that's in this brilliant, town today. That's a brilliant segue because that's what we'll be talking about next. We're coming up after the next break, we'll be looking at Huawei and its presence in Ireland. Now, lots of texts coming in, bubbling into life, particularly the relationship between Sinn Féin and the media and whether it's strained or not strained, how important it is, etc. Um, Anne has texted in and she wants to take personal, <laughs> take up an issue personally with Jared Howland. She says, to the ex-government advisor who says Sinn Féin not giving interviews to journalists doesn't matter one wit to the public, he is wrong! Three exclamation marks. It is of huge significance to voters many of whom are far more intelligent than the so-called advisors, Gerald Howland. Well, thankfully, she's right about the last point. <laughs> uh, the public have always proven to be more more, more, more smarter than, than, than the political class and hence they get to make the final decision. So the issue for Sinn Féin is not whether they do this, that or interview. That doesn't matter. It's whether over time a number of things come together. One is that they're somehow backing off communicating fully with the public. Mm-hmm of which the media is just a subset, it's just a mechanism. And secondly, then you have that remark by Owner Brain basically wanting to say, you know, a civil servant's views were somehow unacceptable to a future Sinn Féin government. That if those things coalesce together into a strand, that could become quite problematic for Sinn Féin. Okay, we'll we'll probably come back to this a little bit more, but I actually want to talk about other companies and people in the media and stresses and strains and all the rest of it. Brita, as I said earlier in the the opening sequence, great story on the front of the Business Post. State moves toward a ban 
on using Huawei in critical infrastructure. I mean, and I'm sure everyone knows, but those who don't, this is a big global Chinese-owned telecommunications company. The US in particular has been very concerned about this company. They've blacklisted them since 2019. Here in Ireland, we've been kind of sleepy enough about it, but it's really getting prime political attention according to this story. Yeah, now this story's been rumbling on for quite a number of years, so it seems now it's sort of coming to a bit of a head. So there was a late amendment uh, to the Communications Regulation Bill last week, and it was put forward by Oisín Smith, who's the Minister of State um, at the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. And essentially, they're saying that it's going to cover security measures relating to what they're calling high-risk vendors. Um, And that refers to technology companies that are deemed by the state to be subject to interference by a third country. So an interesting sort of description there of of what that is. Now, the minister didn't single out any particular company or China when he was talking about the amendment. Um, He was just talking about the designation of high-risk vendors could be applied to any company outside the European Union. So what does this mean, essentially? Well, it means that if a company is designated as a high risk, it will be restricted from providing equipment for use in national telecommunication structures, infrastructures in our telecommunication system here in Ireland. But it could also go as far as barring such companies from 5G networks and restricting them from all networks, including fibre broadband infrastructure. So you can see, therefore, it would have a a, a hugely damning impact on on Huawei's um, business in in this country. Now, interestingly, now again, you know, just going back to what Huawei have said, they've consistently rejected any allegations made against it um, and have said in the past that they're willing to sign no spy agreements with governments amid the US pressure on European countries to restrict use of its solutions. So it's another... Another story about a Chinese company, and we've seen a huge amount of of, of focus on China um, over well the past number of years, but it seems to have, have gained more prominence, I suppose, in the past couple of months. And we had a scenario there last week or the week before where the, the Chinese embassy had to close a what they were calling a so-called Chinese police station that was operating out of Cable Street. Um, and there, that was one of about 25, 30 of those similar outlets in other countries right around the world. So, yeah, again, it's it's interesting to see yeah, developments uh, in this area. Um, Gerald, I suppose Ireland is, is a strange when it comes to foreign affairs because we, we, we tend to be kind of um, very ecumenical, we, we're pluralistic, you know, where it was only a few years ago that Simon Coveney was meeting the Iranian foreign minister. Mm. We've got the whole Ukraine-Russia piece. We've got China and Taiwan. The outside world is a very bumpy disrupted um, space at the moment and Ireland tends to not like that too much because we don't like to be greatly affiliated we're neutral etc etc where where do you stand on this I mean this is an attempt by the government to kind of fall in line with the western diktats on Huawei and we can understand that and maybe there are very good grounds for doing so but is the mechanism going to be easy to get across? I mean, this is going to be a tough piece of legislation. Michael McNamara, in particular, yep. objecting already. He did, and his point was that um, a company so named under this legislation will be entitled to appeal to the courts, but the state's evidence against that company would not be public. Now, I don't have that amount of trust in this state. And I think that if this legislation is to go forward, there has to be some additional safeguards around the activity of the state, around the presentation of its evidence, in addition to the court, should it be several judges sitting together. Um, This of itself does not seem to me to be a a sufficient safeguard to the public interest. And I think Michael McNamara TD has a point. 
but is there the, the counter risk on the other side that if we don't do this diplomatically and countries all across Europe and the US in particular, mm. which we do have a very key relationship with, there's a risk on the other side where we would only be the odd ones out equally. Yeah, and we are very vulnerable in two respects. Firstly, we have the second most globalised economy in the world. So globalisation has been extraordinarily good for Ireland and the rowing back from the full throttle of globalisation presents risks to us as a basis for foreign direct investment going forward. That is happening in the context of a massive cooling of the jets in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Mm. And the third point is we are immensely vulnerable to foreign attack. And by foreign attack, I don't mean armies landing on our shores. I mean, we are an aircraft carrier just out of Europe in the Atlantic Ocean for massive international companies which we benefit from nationally and anything that disrupts our technology that disrupts our energy supply that disrupts our IT systems is an effective undermining of our capacity to host those businesses securely and safely. Mm -hmm. So our vested interest is intertwined in this at least twofold. Yeah, and also the business post, the front page is illustrative of that. Here you have a store about Intel and we're very dependent on foreign investment at once. So a typical Irish breed, I don't know if you agree, but there's there's always a slight kind of uh, Irish people, I think it's just a national personality trait. We like to keep in with all sides. We Mm -hmm. see ourselves in neutral. We don't have skin in the game. We think of, as Jared points out, we actually have huge skin in the game. Uh, This kind of stuff got us... Sorry, as a country, we can't pay for next year without these businesses. Mm-hmm. Just be clear about this. And also we did see with the HSE hack, like, you know, part of our infrastructure, which the health services, was very mm. easily taken down. Absolutely. Like, we don't know exactly who did it, but they could be non-state actors mm-hmm. or state actors. So, all of this stuff, there's a very, very difficult, problematic outside world. I sometimes think here in Ireland we're a little bit kind of cut off from that world. But uh, also my other thing here is, who's going to pay for all of this? Because obviously if, if this passes, and there are companies in Ireland at the moment that are using this equipment, um, uh, at the moment and said that they're, they're quite happy to use it but there's a, a telecom insider who's quoted in, in the paper who says that a ban which included fibre networks which are considered low risk as it is would be costly as it would require the equipment to be replaced there would be a long lead in time to swap it out maybe five to eight <laughs> years so I mean so any information you wanted would correct, be, would be it's long it's going to be gone. taken already and they will also probably uh, likely seek some form of compensation so you know, how, how much is that going to cost and who's paying for it? OK, that's why I think it's, it's probably more partially diplomatic than, than real business. But let's let's nevertheless see how it evolves. Let's stay with finance and housing. I mean, we, we all know that housing is the issue of the day. It just reverberates every single weekend. We have a few stories. The world does look a bit different, though, Breda, doesn't it? Since the ECB decision the other day to raise interest rates by 0.5 percent or of a percentage point let's always get that right the the issue is that the housing market is it, it some people think it's going to cool off the, these interest rates will will take out some of the froth from it but a lot of people are already voting with their feet they're switching to fixed rate mortgages they, they're kind of essentially signalling the customers themselves that this is going to be a period of high inflation of high interest rates and they're getting out of the way by signing these deals that's very strongly covered in the papers mm-hmm. this morning Totally um, and I mean yes it does look very different because most people are now paying a hund- an extra 180 euro a month um, on their track of mortgage as a result of the um, 
interest hikes that have happened over the past couple of months. So it's gone up 2% in three months. If it goes up to 2.3%, we're going to be paying an extra €300 Euro a month. Like that is significant every single month. So add and tie all of that in with the high energy bills, the cost of living prices um, and the budget bounce that we got will be quite quickly wiped out, to be honest. So the issue at the moment, um, well, there's a number of issues, but one of them is the tracker mortgage holders. Um, and there's a piece on page two in the Sunday Times today uh, by Matt McCann. And we've about 200,000 traffic uh, tracker mortgage holders in the country. And at the moment, now they're all wondering whether they should move to a fixed rate as soon as possible. Over the years, anyone who had a tracker mortgage was always told, hold, don't move, don't change, don't do anything. Life was um, good for them for a period, but right? they were the winners. Yes, exactly. And they, you know, they, they took it on. But now um, they are looking at the fact that they probably are, are going to have to move to, to a, a fixed rate. Um, and then we saw in terms of the market itself, you know, Finance Ireland suspended its 10 year fixed rate there only last year. So they're starting to, to get out of the game, you know. So it's it's look there's two ways of looking at it one is the domestic side and and how it's going to impact here and then the European side because again the ECB what are they trying to do they're trying to decrease inflation but what they're doing is putting up interest rates which is having that knock on impact Um, and they're trying not to pitch us into recession so it's really it's a really tight balance Um, and this is why everybody is very much looking at the language that's being used every time an interest rate hike is is being is is announced by by the ECB yeah Um, and finally just when the last interest rate hike hike was announced there were a couple of naysayers who were sort of going this is not the direction we should go and interestingly this time there was very little of that coming from from you know people in Europe and they, they feel that this is the direction we yeah. need to take and Gerald just to go back to your earlier point about globalisation and how good mm. it's been this is another classic example where these big decisions are being taken in Frankfurt not Brussels mm. um, Irish politicians have literally literally mm. not a single jot of influence over any of these things maybe there's good sides of that politically maybe there, there's bad sides but monetary policy set in Frankfurt they, they're going to keep doing it they, they've signalled in their statement on Thursday mm. that there may be further increases one in December and possibly one into next year mm-hmm. you had Christine Lagarde appearing on the Late Late, late, late show, show on Friday night which I thought was a was an interesting mm. punchy move to do when you're in the situation where she's in I mean, is it good for the Irish politicians that these things are happening elsewhere or is it bad? What's your read on that? Well, we made this decision over 20 years ago Mm -hmm. when we joined the euro. And if you have a European currency, you need a European bank. And that's it. End of story. Uh, There's no sign of any great desire in this country to reverse any of those mega decisions. So that's where we are. And that is where we will stay. The central, uh, sorry, the European Central Bank is obviously going to increase interest rates further. And I believe in the next few days, the Federal Reserve in the United States will increase it's um, again by three quarters of one percent, and the uh, Bank of England uh, will, will likewise increase again. So the point of increasing uh, interest rates on the back of inflation, which shows no sign of being tamed, no, no, none. It's mm-hmm. it's five times where they were targeting mm-hmm. exactly. And but you know, there's this there was a story for a couple of months that energy prices will peak, inflation will peak, and things will drop back. Maybe it will, and I hope it does in 2023. But it's not. There's no sign of it happening yet, and the context of increasing interest rates is to cool capacity in the housing market here. So in any functioning housing market these rate increases would cool the market. But this market is so dysfunctional. There is such intergenerational pent up demand as well as an actual shortage of capacity. It is having no such effect whatsoever nor will it. But what it is doing And this is putting a pressure on the state. And this actually comes back to the heart of the spat between Owen O'Brien and the Department of Finance Chief Economist John McCarthy. Higher interest rates mean Ireland is becoming increasingly less attractive for the investment of freewheeling international money in building 
in this country and that cooling of input of international money into our market is doubling down on pressure on the government for it to put more taxpayers' money in and it is a, the opposite to a virtuous circle. Now, Breda, as Jared says, it is set a policy in Frankfurt. So on one level, you know, Pascal Dunham, Michal Martin, Leo Varag, they can stand up and say, well, there's nothing we can do about this. But, but, but there's always a complication. I can see this drifting into the banking area. I think you'll have people saying, mm-hmm. why aren't you putting pressure on the banks not to pass on some of this, delay some of this, etc., etc." Obviously, Bank of Ireland have, have slipped away. They're no longer government owned, but there's big chunks of the other lenders in there. So, I mean, it's not as if the government can just say, ah, oh, that's been done by the ECB. It's nothing to do with us. They will come under some political pressure on this as these rate rises ratchet up. Oh, they will. And um, and I mean, the finance minister will be the one who will have to, to answer in relation to that. And again, going back to, I've said it already a couple of times today, the, the switch that will happen um, in in December with the Taoiseach and the Taunish um, potential reshuffle as well after that, you know, and whether or not um, Michael McGrath will stay in that position or he'll switch with with um, with. Um, Pascal Donoghue. So again, we've we've our own issues there at the moment, and they're they're focusing on that. But they will have to absolutely keep their eye on this, and they may have to just put the head above the parapet at, at some point, uh, pre Christmas or post Christmas, with all of these rates. But the other interesting piece. Um, in the Business Post today is uh, an opinion piece by Aidan Regan and he's again this is focusing very much on on wealth inequality but he's focusing in on housing wealth inequality and the fact that there's been very little focus on this over the years um, how you know house prices relative income to income have surged over the past number of years and that's created a polarisation between homeowners and non-homeowners and that's manifesting itself as an intergenerational conflict so the ar- article just as you read it is, is really interesting but at the very end um, the outcome of the whole thing he says when when home non-homeowners have easy access to credit and mortgage lending um, the home ownership benefits the centre right when it comes to, to politics however when it comes to private renters who feel they're pro- paying rent to large in- institutional landlords for homes they expected to own themselves it's the left that will benefit so again you can really see how as we keep talking about Sinn Féin and heading towards the next the next general election if, if something isn't done and it's not addressed well then the left will probably benefit and Sinn Féin have recently adopted that pillar going back decades of uh, Fine Gael policy that I remember like years and years ago then Fine Gael finance spokesperson Michael Noonan insisting was a must have which was mortgage interest relief. Wow, mm. I remember, I remember mortgage interest relief. Right <laughs> <laughs> in a while. The Fine Gael bandwagon of which only benefits the better off against the people who are houseless and don't have their foot on any ladder to get any house anytime soon. Okay, well, listen, we'll take a break from housing. So coming much up. for the revolution. Uh, no, listen, we'll come into that in the next time. After this break, we'll be looking at the remains of the Sunday newspapers, including Northern Ireland coverage. Gerard Howland and Breda Brown are with me here in studio looking at a pretty fulsome, busy enough uh, Sunday newspapers. Gerald, uh, what have direct your attention to the business post on the right-hand side, what we used to call a shoulder piece up there? Um, Varadkar, PRSI will need to rise to keep state pension at age 66. So this is, the bill has arrived for this recent decision to keep it at that um, age. And the presentation of this on the front page of the Business Post is the shoulder piece, as you said, and then beside it is a colour picture of Mary Lou Macdonald in a completely different story. But they're really uh, aptly just supposed because the story is that Tornishta 
saying the blindingly obvious that because we are not doing as we plan to do over a decade in an ageing population, increase the age of eligibility for an old age pension from 66 to 67 eventually to, to 68 because that is being reversed and because the burden of that is placed on ever fewer number of younger workers also by the way incidentally increasingly likely to be houseless and pension poor, that of course PRSI is going to have to increase. This is from the leader of the tax-cutting wing of Irish politics. But he and uh, the leader of Fianna Fáil in the last election buckled on their 10-year-old plan to go and do this. Why? Because Labour lit a fuse, Sinn Féin got on the wagon, uh, Sinn Féin closed the deal, Labour pathetically failed, and Mary Lou Macdonald famously assured us the demographics will take care of it. Well, the demographics won't take care of it. What the demographics will take care of is imposing an ever greater burden on fewer younger workers to take care of ever more dependents, most of whom are older. It is grossly unfair and inequitable. Uh, This is a small partial admission of the long-term consequence. It is an attack on the younger people. It is an attack on national competitiveness. And it is downright stupid (laughs) that people should be allowed to retire on a pension age 66. Drifting, drifting towards these uh, these parts of his generation. Well, I, I, I couldn't disagree with you more. Yeah. <laughs> I just hope it's in place by the time I get there. But anyway, let's leave that aside. Brida, we do have Northern Ireland bubbling away. I mean, it's we both do. depressing and routine. We've yeah. got more elections, more talks. Um, the protocol bubbling away. Well, we do have an election, but we don't have a date. We've nobody, the problem, so yeah, we've no date and nobody seems to want the elections. Maybe yeah. the DUP had a stretch. I mean, what do you make of it? A bit of coverage in the in the, in the the Sunday papers, but it's not very very lively. No, there's very significant coverage, obviously, across all the papers. Um, but what do we say? Like, things haven't changed. We have we know we're going to have an election. And we've Doug Beattie on, the, on this programme in a, in, a, in a little bit. Uh, the Ulster Unionist leaders will Doug Beattie. So. Absolutely, which will be interesting. We don't have a date. Um, so the civil servants and the Northern Secondary are now are now doing the day to day running, um, and again a lot of people are just sort of saying, you know, what would an election do? Will it change the result? More than likely, probably not. Um, and you know, Colm Eastwood is the leader of the SDLP is quoted in a piece in the Sunday Business Post by by Daniel Murray, and um, essentially just saying that the, if we have an election without a deal on the protocol, the old arguments come back, and it makes it more difficult to have an assembly at the end of it. And he's right. So we're we're stuck in deadlock essentially at the moment. Um, and will will it change anything? Probably not. Will the DUP come out with more seats? There's an argument. Some people are saying, sort of, which will give them maybe more of a mandate to for the stalemate. But others are saying that it might actually. Uh, diminish diminish their position, um, and they are the ones who are holding the north, you know, at the moment to 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 ransom. An interesting view, though, from the deputy leader of the alliance, uh, Stephen Farry, again in the same piece in the Business Post, and he's saying that you know under the current rules, the DUP is entitled to nominate the deputy first minister, but if it refuses to do so, the system freezes, and there's no other alternative, which is interesting. So he's saying what they suggest is the next party in size would have the option of nominating a first minister, minister or deputy first minister if the relevant parties of size won't take up those posts. Gerald, I mean, it's just stultifying paralysis up there. Mm. I mean, was it ever different, you, you might say, in another context? But, I mean, the protocol is the, the nub of this. It's not going to be solved anytime soon. If you actually listen to people in Brussels, they say this is technical stuff. There's a lot of moving parts. It's not going to be solved tomorrow. Northern Ireland is the price taker here. It's sitting in lots of ordinary people want their drains fixed. They want stuff done locally. It's all held up. I mean, it's it's very difficult for the northern politicians. What are they going to say afresh in this election that if it's going to happen? What's their platforms going to be? And I can see a scenario where what, what effect will this have on turnout? Mm. 
And if it does have an effect on turnout, who doesn't show up? I would really be concerned for the official unionist party and for the SDLP. I think they are the most vulnerable in what becomes an ever more trenchant squeeze along purely sectarian lines. We will or we won't have uh, a, a Sinn Féin first minister in nationalist terms or we will or we won't go in uh, under this protocol as it is now in DUP terms. And I would just be particularly concerned for those two two parties who do have a lot to offer, who are refreshed to one extent or another, who are not still in that old tired phase that both were at, at one juncture. And the second thing is the mood music from London has been a lot more positive for some time. Even Steve Baker is in, uh, sounding indeed. very light and sunny. Uh, however, just to catch ourselves for a moment, that positivity in mood has not been matched by a single positive initiative in terms of action. Mm. Mm. And there is some scepticism about what of anything this will eventually lead. And then there's the bottom line. And the bottom line in British government terms is simply this, that all of this always goes back to the same thing, which is an internal negotiation between different factions in the Conservative Party, led by any given time by a Conservative leader whose overwhelming strategic requirement is to keep her or his party together. Mm -hmm. So what room for manoeuvre does Rishi Sunak actually have, even if he's willing? Yeah, it hasn't I mean, tried. It's not tested, but that ultimately is the bottom line question. I mean, it's almost coming like the the Good Friday talks. You've got so many different parties. Maybe they should get them all in the room, from the ERG but, but to the this, DUP to the Ulster, the Irish has government. Been suggested and bear in mind the twenty fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement is next April, and you look back now and you go, God, everything has changed, but nothing has changed. Okay. Um, but there has. I been think a call we'll have you guys back in six months' table. time, and we'll have exactly <laughs> the same stuff. For now, I'm going to have to leave it there because we're up against time. Brida Brown is director of Unique Media, Public Relations, and communications agency here in the city and you also heard Gerald Howland who is a public affairs consultant and commentator and former government advisor he's gone off to meet his friend and the texter who wants a word with them thanks to both of you for contributing over the next hour On the Record with Gavin Riley Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike Different skill sets diverse opinions it all adds up to the new equation On News Talk. 